According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Hebrews this morning, if you want to join me there. Hebrews chapter 4. I hope to conclude chapter 4 this morning. I think I said that last week. But uh, we're in verses 14 through 16. And some verses that we could spend the next 20 years in and uh, not exhaust what it means to boldly approach the throne of grace. And we draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I can prove this biblically. I can prove this through experience. Time of need is uh, all the time. (laughs) All right. Today, day after day, as long as it's called today. You and I are uh, living out in our humanity, in our temporal life existence, what is known as time of need. And that's what we have. And so we should constantly be before the Lord in prayer. We should be praying without ceasing. We should constantly be worshiping. And we should constantly be serving in this capacity. And uh, so some people even go so far as to say that verses 14, 15, and 16 ought to be into chapter 5. Put the chapter division there because this is really the kickoff the introduction to the priestly portion of the book in chapters 5 through 10, and I don't dispute that. It's a great introduction to our role in Christ. He is our great high priest, and we are in him, and this is, uh, this is our blessing. So backing up then to verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Given who he is and given what he's done, how can we not hold fast our confession? It is, it is just unthinkable. It is the height of disobedience to when, we, when he's given us everything and he's done all the work to not embrace what he's supplied and proceed forward on that basis. All right? And so we're going to pick up there as well. Uh, we, we had a prayer a moment ago before our second hymn, but I'm going to pray again just in particular for the content of this message. Join me, please, as we go before that throne of grace. Most gracious Heavenly Father, there's no limit to our prayers. We can come to you once or twice or a hundred times today. And Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for our blessing this morning to open up the Word of God and to be taught by your Holy Spirit. I'm thankful, Father, that even the deep things of God are not beyond our capacity because the study of the Word of God is not a human exercise. This is not earthly material. And Father, we're not left to our own ability and left for smarter people to figure things out and other people struggle. Father, we all struggle. (laughs) We all walk by Your grace and we all are indwelt by Your Holy Spirit I thank you for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. I thank you for his active ministry in speaking, his active ministry in hearing. The Holy Spirit's at work, both transmitting and receiving the Word of God today. And so we call upon that faithfulness to bless us as we hear. I thank you, Father, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So this morning, Father, build us up in the faith and equip us. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we have a tremendous provision here. We have such a great high priest. And in verse 15, we have a double negative for emphasis. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. All right, which is a stronger way of saying we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And yet it says so with a double negative to make a point, to make a very important point. Because we have a great high priest who is different than any other great high priest that there's ever been. And from Aaron to Eliezer to whoever his son was and all the string of high priests after that, in the history of high priests, you had high priests that kept dying all the time and followed, you know, had to be followed by their son. But you also had high priests who were sinners. And you had high priests who could sympathize because they themselves were beset with many weaknesses. And so there might be a a temptation or a thought or a concern that maybe because our great high priest is sinless and perfect, that he won't be like those other high priests, he won't understand. He won't relate. 
he won't uh, sympathize. And so the author of Hebrews is making very clear, not only here, but repeatedly throughout the book of Hebrews, he sympathizes, he identifies, he understands. Because he walked our walk. He was tempted in all things, even as we are, yet without sin. And so we're going to do a contrast this morning. We'll take some time, actually, to show you everything that an Old Testament high priest had to go through when he became high priest, and all of the procedures, and all the liturgy, and the ritual, and all of the... Goodness, I'm glad I'm not one of those. Okay? That's complicated. And it's also uh, fearful. Because if you get one step wrong, man, you get you get killed on the spot going into the Holy of Holies in an unworthy manner. That's that's pain of death right there. Okay? So there's there's it's good to learn this and it's good to contrast it and to celebrate the blessings that we have in Christ. And as we do that, though, we in particular are going to see the parallels that apply to our Savior and the parallels that don't apply to our Savior because He was not a sinner, right? Uh, and yet the things that don't uh, parallel are also important. He doesn't die either, which is good, which means we don't need another high priest to come along to follow Him. There is no one else to follow Him. He is the one and only, the great high priest of our confession. And that's uh, part of something you can teach as well that centers on eternal security. We'll, we'll say more about that as we get that far. So um, as we were in this last week, and I know Communion Sunday and we don't get so far in Communion Sunday, but we did look in verse 14 at a number of things, and I'll just real quickly run through them, uh, that this does form a closing parallel to the prologue. So I would encourage you uh, on your own time, just for devotional reading, read back through chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and see that prologue that starts the book. You're going to find that this is a fitting conclusion in parallel to that uh, prologue in verses 14 through 16 here of chapter 4. Remember, Jesus is the one that passed through the heavens. We see that uh, here, having passed through the heavens, uh, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand. And so he accomplished our redemption. We learned that in chapter 1. When he made purification for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that is so significant and it is so powerful. And it comes in parallel with the passage we're looking at here today in verses 14 through 16. Having passed through the heavens. What a joy. What a joy is it? You know, think about the joy we're going to have when we pass through the heavens, right? When that trumpet sounds and we launch out of here at the rapture of the church, man, I'm going to shout so loud. You know, the, the, there's even song lyrics that talk about that. It's going to sound like thunder, okay? And, and our tears will flow so much in joy. Those tears are going to make it, people left behind on earth will think it's raining. And it's just our tears, happy to see our Savior as, as we pass through the clouds, okay? Well, we're going where He's gone. And that's the point. He has gone to prepare a place for us. And that's where we're going. And this is the blessing we have to pay attention to. And thank God, as he was on the cross and the veil of the temple was rent in two, he never even went in there, didn't have to go in there, had no business going in there. That earthly replica was for the Levites. That earthly replica was for a different kind of high priest. A high priest that had to go in there year after year with blood not his own. He had to go in there year after year. And every time, even when he was successful, it never once took away sin. It simply provided a cover, an atonement. The term atonement means cover. And so they were covered for another year. And then he'd have to come back and do it all over again. And so I love the fact that when Jesus was on the cross and, and he shouted, you know, Tetelestai, it is finished. When he finished that great work of atonement, he then the, the veil of the temple was rent in two. And he didn't go in there. Where did he go? He passed through the heavens. He took his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's a tremendous doctrine that, that comes there. So you're going to see this again and again. Uh, it's going to get recapped again in chapter 8, just in case you missed it in chapter 3 and you missed it in chapter 4 and you missed it in between in chapters 5 and 6 and 7. Uh, the author of Hebrews does us a favor when he begins chapter 8. He says, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. 
Don't ever lose sight of that. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, and he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He unites the office of king with the office of priest, and there's other aspects there that we looked at. The, um, we're ready now to take a look at his priest son, which we're going to do. The combination of king and priest was impossible for Old Testament fulfillment. The king was from the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. That was prophesied as early as, as Genesis 49. And so there was no question that when Messiah comes, he would come from the, the, the tribe of Judah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And there's no question that the crown belongs to the tribe of Judah. But Levi is the priestly tribe. And so how do you end up with a king priest? If the king comes from Judah and the priest comes from Levi, there is no way that those offices will ever intersect until they intersect in Jesus, all right? Because he is prophet, priest, and king, and his priesthood is not a Levitical priesthood. It is not as a descendant of Aaron. His priesthood is on the basis of an indestructible life, which is, by the way, why we hold that same priesthood. You and I don't qualify. We're not sons of Aaron. We wouldn't qualify as Levitical priests, but we do qualify because we have an indestructible life. The day we got saved, we received Zoe life. When you believed in Jesus Christ and received eternal life, you know what happened? You received that indestructible life. Zoe is indestructible, okay? My daughter's not here today. She would love to hear me say that. Zoe is indestructible, okay? She'll hear the MP3 maybe. All right. But it's prophesied in the Old Testament that in the coming kingdom there would be harmony, there would be a reconciliation, a peace between these offices. And you can read about that in Zechariah 6 and verse 13. And so we should hold fast. Given who he is and given what he can do, what ought we do? Right? That's the logic. Given who he is, given what he does, we hold fast. Let us hold fast. We draw near, we hold fast. Okay? And so we have an application here in chapter 4, which is a confident prayer life. We have an application in chapter 10, which is a sharp-pointed stick goading one another in our priesthood. So it says, um, let us hold fast our confession in verse 14. And then verse 15, let us draw near with confidence. Let us draw near with confidence. You ever gone somewhere and you realize you don't belong? You walk into a place and they thought you were somebody else. And then you realize very quickly, oh, they think we're the band. Oh, we can't play an instrument. We can't, we're not the band. We're not who they think we are. We don't belong here. We probably ought to tell them we're not the ones that belong here. We probably should just own up to the fact that we're not who they think we are. And let's go ahead and just kindly explain the mistake and we can leave. And then they show this huge buffet and say, we know you guys would be hungry just eat this here before you get your gear set up. Oh. All right. Anyway, I'm not going to finish that story. I'm not going to finish that story at all. Or in Saudi Arabia, driving an MP vehicle, and we pulled into a base that we weren't supposed to know that it was there, but we knew that it was there. In fact, I had business to deliver some things there to the 5th Special Forces Group. And I had material to supply to the 5th Special Forces Group. So I was there by invitation. Now, I was not 5th Special Forces Group. I'm just regular Army military police. But they were expecting some Special Forces MPs. They were expecting some 82nd Airborne guys out of Fort Bragg. And, and they saw the MP vehicle, and they just waved us through. And I thought, wow. They just waved us through. That's not very good security. you know. I was ready to give password and whatever, but... They just waved us through. So we pulled in. We got to their headquarters. We got out. You know how intimidating it is to be surrounded by a bunch of Special Forces guys? There were Navy SEALs guys there. There was French Foreign Legion there. There was, I mean, there were some seriously brain-damaged people. <laughs> there was a British SAS guy there. We met a lot of people. And we did not belong. We were somewhere we were not supposed to be. And so when they realized their mistake, we very quickly said, uh, I'm just delivering this package. Can you see that it gets to where it needs to go and we're going to leave right now? And then that's, so that happened too. So if you ever find yourself somewhere that you're not supposed to be, 
somewhere where you're completely unworthy, somewhere that you're completely uncomfortable, and you just can't wait to bail as soon as you can, that's not what your prayer life is supposed to be. When you and I come into the Holy of Holies, when we come before God the Father in prayer, we belong there. We absolutely belong there. We're in Jesus. We're in Jesus Christ, and He belongs there. And so you got to dump the, the poor prayer ideas that say, well, I need to, you know, i got to... Some people try to bargain with God in their prayers. You know, they pray, they ask for this, they kind of... And then they kind of feel a little bit good because they've been, they've been kind of good lately. And so they've, they've, they've made more church services than they've missed lately. So they feel kind of better about asking for stuff in their prayer life. Or maybe they've missed more church services than they've made lately. They had kind of a rough April and May, and they haven't really been that consistent lately. And so then they kind of get wishy-washy in their prayer life, as if somehow they're less worthy of receiving whatever it is they're praying about. Let me tell you something. It's called a throne of grace. You don't earn and deserve anything anyway. Quit thinking that you do. All right? Just know right here, right now, you deserve the lake of fire. Jesus Christ deserves everything, and you're in Him. So when you stand before the Father, He doesn't see you. He sees His Son. How awesome is that? And so we have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we have that admonition. The admonition in chapter 10 has to do with provoking one another and it's, it's a much larger expansion, so I'm not going to spend a ton of, ton of time on it. I want to get into our priesthood stuff here this morning. But in Hebrews 10, it says, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, this is 10, 19 through 23, or really 19 through 25. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. We enter through the veil that is his flesh. It's the new and living way. We present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. So take this and read Romans 12 and then read Hebrews 10 and put this all together. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then it doesn't say, let's ask for a bunch of stuff. Let's find grace and mercy to help in time of need. It doesn't say that. That's what it said back in chapter 4. In this context, we're actually going to stimulate one another. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And so I want to stimulate you today. You want to stimulate me today. We want to stimulate one another today. It's a one another imperative. So it's not a one-way street. It's not something the pastor does and everybody else in the church receives it. It is a, it's not a one-way street. It is a mutual reciprocal stimulation. An ox goad. We poke the ox to get him going. That's what it is. And that's what God expects us to do. And you know, if, if you're driving a cart and the ox doesn't want to go anywhere, that's what this oxuno verb talks about. It's a sharp pointed stick and you poke him in the, in the, I can say but, right? That's a, <laughs> not a vulgar term. You just poke him in the butt. And the ox, I mean, who likes that? Nobody likes that, getting poked in the, the sharp stick. So he starts moving. And that's what we're all supposed to do, one to another. We're all supposed to do that one to another. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some. It gets habit forming, doesn't it? Easier the second time, easier the third time. Yeah, it's a breeze the fourth and fifth time. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And when we get into verse 15 now, we've got a sympathizing high priest. Now, we want to make clear that there is a contrast being made, but then we're assured that it's not a uh, contrast. Does that make sense? There is a contrast, but it's not a contrast. And that's why the author uses the double negative. Jesus, as a sympathizing high priest, is quite a contrast with Aaron and his, and his descendant high priests. However, it's not a contrast in the way that you might be led to think. So we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. That's the point being made. 
because he's sinless, because he's perfect, because he's seated at the Father's right hand, that doesn't mean that he cannot sympathize. He can sympathize. He does sympathize. All day, every day, he sympathizes. And, uh, and he never gets tired of it. He never has a bad day like we do. He never throws up his hands and says, well, enough of that. Okay? So we have a, uh, a high priest. Now, if you're not careful, if we didn't have chapter 5... We might be led to think that, uh, that he was different than the other high priests. Uh, we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. I want to disabuse that motion immediately, that, that idea immediately, because you see the, the earthly high priest, what we see in the first two verses of chapter 5, every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And then it says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided. Just write your name in there, okay? (laughs) I did the same thing. That's all of us. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. And so that's the, there is a contrast, but not really. Those high priests were beset with weaknesses, well, so was our Savior didn't deserve them, didn't earn them, but the Father caused him to suffer, caused him to experience these weaknesses so that he could identify with each one of us. And then it goes on to say, and those earthly high priests, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. That's a big difference because Jesus didn't have a, a sin sacrifice for himself. He was sinless, but he became the sin sacrifice himself. And that's the point. The one without sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we have this contrast. Okay, let's spend some time in Leviticus, shall we? Don't you just love Leviticus? Specifically Leviticus 21. And then uh, we'll come back to this. But Leviticus 21. And let's show you the contrast. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Chapter 21, Regulations Concerning Priests. And I think, too, it's interesting. When we talk about sympathizing, we're not talking about really an emotion more so. We're talking about a spiritual service of of ministry that he ministrates in a sympathetic way with a compassion for our sufferings. It's far more than just an emotional sympathy. It shapes how he serves us. It shapes how he prays for us. That's the impact on it. Anyway, um, it's more than just an emotional sympathy. And even the Levitical high priests were capable of an emotional sympathy. All right. Now, with uh, the contrast here, The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron. So that's one family out of an entire tribe. If if you have a Levite that was not a a descendant of Aaron, then they were called Levites. They were in the same tribe, but not the same family. And so even though Aaron was a family from inside of Levi, it was a specific family within Levi. And so uh, any non-son of Aaron, non-descendant of Aaron is a Levite, not a priest. All right, so speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people. Remember, if you touch a dead body, you're defiled, you're ceremonially unclean. And that might be a problem, or may, may not be a problem if you're, you know, from the tribe of Reuben or whatever, and you're not really you know, you're months away from Passover and whatever. But if you're a priest, that's a problem. If you're ceremonially unclean, you got to serve every single day. All right, so no, uh, no one shall defile himself for a dead person among all his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, also his virgin sister who is near to him because she has had no husband, For her, he may defile himself. And so there's permission that's granted. A Levitical priest can defile himself for the the closest uh, family members. For the unmarried sister, not the married sister. 
All right. Verse 4 says, He shall not defile himself as a relative by marriage among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make any baldness on their heads. That was a religious function among Egyptians and other pagan priests. Nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts in their flesh. Again, pagan practices. And we see the priests and the prophets doing this when Elijah has his contest uh, with the, the prophets of Baal, just hacking themselves to show their devotion. Um, they shall be holy to the Lord, to, the, to God. They shall not profane the name of their God, for they present the offerings by fire to the Lord, the food of their God, so they shall be holy. Now again, this is Old Testament. We can draw principles from this. How do we conduct our temporal life? How do we conduct our business life? How do we raise our families? How do we operate in culture, in our world, and so forth? We don't want to defile ourselves because we have a priestly ministry to fulfill. So that's for the basic level priest right there. They shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry, nor shall they take, except for Hosea was ordered to, but he's the exception to the rule. Nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for he is holy to his God. You shall consecrate him, therefore, for he offers the food of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, I am holy. Also the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Normally death is by stoning in the Old Testament, but this is one of the rare exceptions where the harlotry of, of this for the daughter of the, uh, of the priest. All right. Anyway, um, that, that, so those are the basic level priests. Now you get to the high priest in verse 10. The priest who is the highest among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil has been poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments. See, he has the priestly vestments. He has the ephod. He's got the, the Urim and the Thummim inside the, the fold of his ephod. He wears the, he wears the, uh, the crown. Shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes, nor shall he approach any dead person, nor defile himself even for his father or his mother. Can't even preach the funeral for your mom. You can't even bury your mom. You are totally, completely set apart as the great high priest. Nor shall he um, go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. He shall take a wife in her virginity. And this is even more severe than the priest. The high priest can't even marry a widow. As it says here, a widow or a divorced woman or one who is profaned by harlotry. These he may not take, but rather he is to marry a virgin of his own people. Okay. By the way, you can preach a lot. That verse has a lot in it. That verse defines a lot, right? I mean, it defines a, what, a, what is a virgin, right? You think, well, that doesn't have to be defined. Well, it does, especially in our culture. Okay. And look at the definition here. You know, a, a woman that's, of, that's eligible to be married, because she's not already married, okay? The married woman's not a virgin, but someone that you could consider marrying would be someone who's never married, someone who is divorced, and someone who's widowed, right? Because they've never married, or they're no longer married through death or divorce, see? And uh, the high priest was forbidden from marrying a widow or a divorced woman. But it's curious to me, notice the definitions here. There's really only three options for non-virgins. The three options for non-virgins are, did you notice those? Read verse 14 again. A widow is a non-virgin. A divorced woman is a non-virgin. And the only other option is the harlot. Okay? And that makes folks uncomfortable, but that's what the Bible says. That the only other non-virgin is the harlot. And Deuteronomy says the same thing, by the way. That uh, if, if the girl was found not to be a virgin on her wedding night, that meant that she played the harlot in her father's house. Okay? And she was executed. All right. 
Um, anyway, high priest. is to marry a virgin of his own people so that he will not profane his offspring among his people. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Okay? And so these are all the, the restrictions then that are, that are placed. And there's more. It goes on beyond that. This, I hope this is helpful too, by the way. I mean, I had two daughters. I have two sons. Uh, only one is married. I've got three more to go. But uh, the whole goal is to, to present a pure virgin to, to his bride or to her groom at the, uh, at the altar as we, uh, as we train up our children. And in this day and age, too, it's like we're from Mars or something. We, we were like, what kind of weirdos are you kind of a thing? Don't you know everybody's doing this? Well, all right. And there's more. Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. No one who has a defect shall approach a blind man or a lame man, he who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb, or a man who has a broken foot or broken hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or one who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed testicles. No man among the descendants... Were there, were there, how do you test for this? Do they do job interviews? You know, they did, seriously. Parents raising children? I mean, they test for the lamb without spot or blemish with every animal they sacrifice, with every child they raise. All right. The point being, of course, is this is a priesthood that's painting the picture of Jesus Christ. And to defile that picture was unthinkable. The perfect priest is on his way. All right. The uh, verse twenty-one: No man among the descendants of Aaron, the priest who has a defect, is to come near to offer the Lord's offerings by fire. Since he has a defect, he shall not come near to offer the food of his God. So he has no priestly service to perform. He is excluded. He may eat the food of his God, both of the most holy and the holy. Only he shall not go into the veil or come near the altar because he has a defect so that he will not profane my sanctuary. So he does get to eat. They don't kill him. He he gets to eat. He just cannot serve. All right. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons, to all the sons of Israel. So, you know, it's curious to me. And and the idea, especially early in the chapter too, where he's set apart and the high priest can't even bury his mother, can't bury his father, can't bury his sister. He is set apart. There is something unique about that high priest. There is something special. There is something different. And he is set apart. See. Of course, before he became high priest, he could bury his parents. Anyway, there's, there's different aspects there. So here's our Savior. Holy, set, undefiled, set apart. And yet he identifies with each one of us. He understands our weakness. He understands our struggle. And uh, we have the, the blessings there. Although Aaron and his descendant high priests were forbidden from defiling themselves, even for closest family members, Jesus had no priestly or Nazarite restrictions, and he freely associated with defiled ones, taking those defilements upon himself on the cross. What a blessing. Jesus had no priestly or Nazarite restrictions. You know, he didn't even begin his priestly ministration until he was on the cross. He was not under a Nazarite vow. John the Baptist was. John the Baptist uh, couldn't drink alcohol and had other dietary restrictions and haircut restrictions, things like that. Jesus didn't. Jesus was able to eat and drink with sinners. Matthew eleven nineteen. Jesus had no priestly or Nazarite restrictions. He freely associated with defiled ones. And this is, this is tremendous. Matthew eleven nineteen. 19. See, in contrast to John, John came neither eating or drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Jesus was willing to eat with the prostitutes and eat with the the tax collectors and eat with the sinners. And he regularly had fellowship with a crowd that the Pharisees would never even go into the house. The Pharisees were the the set-apart ones. Jesus was right there. He said, look, 
you know, healthy people don't need a physician. I'm going to sick people. Sick people need a physician. Sinners need a savior. So he associated with defiled ones and he took those defilements upon himself on the cross. Isaiah 53, 9. I read this a lot in our uh, communion services. Isaiah 53, 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. See, he took our guilt. He was innocent. He was innocent. You can read that whole chapter there in Isaiah 53. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. This is why we have uh, the uh, the substitutionary atonement of our Savior on the cross. That's what gives us the ministry of reconciliation. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. When we talk to unbelievers about righteousness, we're not giving them our righteousness. (laughs) We're just sinners saved by grace and we want them to know how we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to our account. And we let them know it's available for them too. It's not about what, what they've done. It's not about what we've done. Nothing of the sort. Okay? That's a grace provision. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Do you remember this? We, we taught this back in Hebrews 2. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Since he himself was tempted in that which he had suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So he understands, he relates, not because he did it, but because he was tempted to do it and didn't do it but he was tempted to do it. He relates with every sin we've ever done. He was tempted with it. He's able to come and intercede on our behalf. Finally, 1 John 3, 5. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. That's why we want to abide in Him. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. And this is our provision. This is our priesthood. What a blessing. And so this is the contrast, and this is the Savior that we have. Although He was sinless, He still identifies. And that because He's sinless, don't think that means He cannot sympathize. He can sympathize. It also means we can minister too. It means we can minister. It's like when somebody comes to you and they're struggling with something and then they they try to talk to you about it and then they, they throw up their hands and say, well, you wouldn't understand. You've never gone through this. Okay? Well, maybe I have, maybe I haven't. Okay? I've gone through other things. Doesn't matter. Okay? Uh, you haven't gone through what I've gone through and I haven't gone through what you've gone through. Sometimes it overlaps, sometimes it doesn't. But I've gone through an awful lot uh, vicariously. (laughs) You know, any shepherd does. As the Apostle Paul said, who is led into sin without my intense concern? You know, I, I learned that quickly as a young pastor. The first time, boom, you know, pastor, my wife's leaving me. It was like, ugh, punch in the gut. It was like Sharon was leaving me. It's like, oh, wow. You know, or my daughter's pregnant. Ugh, punch in the gut. Okay, oh, it's like my daughter. And you learn vicariously when you identify with your flock that this stuff hurts. But even if we don't understand, that's all right. We have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He understands. And he was tempted in all things. He gets it. He understands far better than we do. So don't, uh, you know, don't feel like if... If somebody has not walked in your shoes and they don't get it, we all walk in the same shoes as fallen people in a fallen world and we need that same grace, that same mercy to help in time of need. So, we, have, uh, we do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. So therefore, let us draw near with confidence. We draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And I love this too. This is a, this is a thrill. You see, the ultimate 
Levitical approach to God was not a throne of grace. It was called a mercy seat. Are you familiar with that? You know, it's interesting when you study the tabernacle and all the furnishings and all the things that point to Christ. The ultimate approach is the mercy seat. But we learn in the New Testament that Jesus is our mercy seat. We go beyond a mercy seat. Through Jesus, we come to the Father. We go far beyond Christ. The pinnacle of what they could come to was the mercy seat. Was the glory of God that rested above the mercy seat was the Shekinah. But we have an approach that's beyond, beyond that. So if you're not familiar with this, I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but we do have time this morning. Exodus 25, 17 through 22. If it's been a while since you've studied your tabernacle. And all of these furnishings and all of these, uh, the robes and all of the ritual that goes into this. Every every last bit of this has significance. There's typology, there's shadows. Everything points ahead to Christ. This is all shadows. The substance belongs to Christ. And that's why we're in the book of Hebrews. So we can uh, worship in spirit and in truth. So, um, without reading a whole chapter to you here, um, you've got um, the uh, robes, the ephod that they're going to wear and the other things. Then you've got the ark of acacia wood. Acacia instead of shittim. Just a adjustment from the old King James. Two and a half cubits long. There's overlaid with pure gold. Um, and then you can teach, of course, the wood and the gold demonstrating the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, true humanity, true de- undiminished deity with wood and gold. And uh, you shall put in the, into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. That's why it's sometimes called the ark of the testimony or the ark of the covenant. They would put the tablets in there, the stone tablets. They put the manna in there. They put Aaron's rod that budded in there. It was their uh, testimony. Uh, Then the mercy seat in verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. And mercy seat, it's, uh, it's, it's the word for propitiation. When you get into the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, you have a theological context for propitiation. That means satisfaction. A a mercy seat is the place of satisfaction. And all of this is anticipating that a day is coming when the Father will be eternally satisfied. Unlike with this mercy seat. With this mercy seat, year after year after year, here we go again. But it is anticipating a day is coming when once and for all, the Father will be infinitely, eternally satisfied. And the mercy seat is Jesus. And so we know that. But here is translated mercy seat. Of pure gold. Two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub at one end, one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. And so it's overshadowing, it's covering the mercy seat, looking down upon the uh, the glory that would be hovering there. And the cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat because angels have something to learn when they watch what our Savior does. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. It's like a lid for the chest. And the ark, uh, in the ark, you shall put the testimony which I will give you. And there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. And so it's the pinnacle of Levitical approach. It's the pinnacle of their priesthood. And they come, they bring their sacrifice. They sacrifice in the outer courtyard. They sacrifice at the outer veil. They sprinkle the incense at the inner veil. They sprinkle the blood on the inner veil. They pass with, the high priest passes within the veil with blood not his own. He then has to smear the corners of the mercy seat with the blood not his own. And if he survives all that, (laughs) 
then God wants to talk. They're going to converse. They're going to worship. And the worship is a conversational fellowship. So there I will appear. I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. There's other uh, furnishings out in the holy place. The uh, table of showbread, the golden lampstand. These are all pictures of Christ in His first advent. Um, even down to the lamps and the snuffers. Everything, the bulbs, everything that gets you down to the end of the chapter. The curtains, the boards, the sockets. I mean, we've got several chapters here. The veil and the screen. Keep in mind, that veil, that's the veil he rent in two. The veil he didn't walk between. He had no business in there. He's not a Levite. But it's rent in two to show its completion. Tetelestai, it is finished. The finished work of Jesus Christ makes that animal ritual unnecessary. Are we clear on that? We don't do animal ritual anymore because it's theologically fulfilled in Christ. Not because it's primitive. Not because it's ancient. Not because we're modern. Not because we're past all that. Let's be clear. It's because the theological realities are fulfilled in Christ. Don't fall for it when the skeptics try to tell you that we've got to update the Bible to modern sensibilities. All right. Leviticus 16. I tell you, these details will make your head spin. I've never made any secret of the fact that Leviticus is probably my 65th, 66th favorite book. I will. I don't dislike it because it's the Bible and God wrote it, and I love everything God's done for me. But it won't. It never makes the short list of of books I think about when I'm going to teach next after after Hebrews is over. But maybe we need to. Maybe I need to finish Hebrews and then take us all to Leviticus. Dan Cross in Leviticus now at Corpus Christi Bible Church. So I'll just steal all his notes and we'll, we'll take it from there. <laughs> Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. You know, they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. They brought strange fire before the Lord. And he, he struck them down dead. The reason why Eleazar and Ithamar are the two descendants of Aaron are because Nadab and Abihu brought strange fire before the Lord. There should have been four divisions of Aaron. Instead, there were only two divisions of Aaron. So the Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. To approach the holiness of God in an unworthy manner, no, one man, one day a year, with blood not his own. So Aaron shall enter, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall appear, uh, shall enter the holy place with this, with a bowl for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments and shall be next to his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and attired with a linen turban. These are all holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. None of that applies today in the church. Okay, It's all metaphor. We have a spiritual reality. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from all sin. Okay, And unless you're a Mormon <laughs> or, uh, I don't know, there's other groups. Islam has different... Uh, <clears throat> cleansing procedures and whatnot, Jews under rabbinic Judaism. Evangelical Christianity does not have special sanctified underwear. Okay? All right. But look how serious this is, though. And how he's bathed and how he's dressed and the sacrifices he has to bring. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats, for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. Now, Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus was sinless. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. 
It takes two goats to picture what Jesus did by himself. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. That's the one that's got to die. So however you flip the coin or however you drew the lot, okay, one of these goats is going to live, one of these goats is going to die. And uh, so there you go. And the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord. This is the pattern for the living sacrifice. This is the pattern for Jesus in resurrection. To make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. So off he goes. Take him off into the wilderness. Never see him again. So you have the goat that died, the goat that took away the sin. Gone. That sin's not coming back. Okay? Until next year, and then you redo it all over again. You get a new scapegoat. You get a new... But see, this is how they taught it. This is how they would teach. And even the children would get this and understand this. Jesus, of course, is both because he had to die, but he didn't stay dead. He rose and he took away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, uh, and there's more. So Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, make atonement for himself, for his household. He shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord with two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. This would be good for, for like essential oils or things. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise, he will die. You know, it's like if you know how to make your campfire extra smoky. We learned that in Boy Scouts. You know, you take your kind of wet uh, branches and leaves and you could really make a, a fire extra, extra smoky. And uh, boys like extra, extra smoky on uh, the fires that they're making. Well, this incense was designed to just fill the, te- the tabernacle, to fill the outer court, to, to fill it so extra, extra smoky and sweet smelling that uh, he could go in and he could approach the glory through the smoke. So um, then he has to take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. On the east side, also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. Sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel. See, there's national sins that have to be atoned for as well as personal sins in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides in them in the midst of their impurities. When Jesus died on the cross, the, t- the, the veil was rent in two and he didn't go in there. Instead, he took his blood to heaven and he cleansed the heavenly temple. And that's a powerful chapter. We'll get to that in chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 will take us through a lot of that. All right, well, there's more. Um, anyway, in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls. This is the day of atonement. It's the holiest day in all of Judaism. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Well, Jesus is our mercy seat. He is our propitiation. He is our satisfaction. Romans 3.25, 1 John 2.2. 2. So the ultimate Melchizedekian approach to God can now become the throne of grace. We go far beyond the mercy seat because Jesus is our mercy seat. We get to go to the throne of grace. The Melchizedek priesthood stands before the throne of grace. The Levitical priesthood stood before the mercy seat. That's a big difference. And I believe I'm correct on the adjectival form of Melchizedekian. If I'm wrong, let me know after class. (laughs) But I double-checked it. I looked it up. Romans 3.25. This too, by the way, I don't know if you have a Mormon background or not, but Melchizedek is a huge feature in the Mormon religion and it is sad what they've done they've bastardized the book of hebrews they have so perverted uh the glories of hebrews to create this thing that they've invented it's just heartbreaking 
Romans 3.25, whom God displayed publicly. See, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, not the blood of bulls or goats, in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, mercy seats, the same word back in Leviticus, okay, the Greek Septuagint, same word here, mercy seat, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. Because they were covered, He could pass over them. But Christ, our Passover, has been crucified and He is our mercy seat. He is our propitiation. First John 2.2 2. We're all a bunch of sinners, aren't we? Well, guess what? We have an advocate. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is seated at the Father's right hand. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He passed through the heavens. Let us hold fast our confession. He Himself is the mercy seat, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Any unbeliever you're talking to, Jesus died for their sins. Okay, Not ours only, but those of the whole world. So the ultimate Melchizedekian approach to God can now become a throne of grace. And so it's infinitely ours. Mercy and grace are now infinitely ours for the asking. Infinitely ours for the asking. He gives exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. There are no limits. What, what will he not now give us? Consider the price he already paid to purchase us. <laughs> if you've already paid an infinite amount, how much more now can you give to the one you bought, to the one you provided for? That's the ratio. That's the percentage. So mercy and grace are infinitely ours for the asking. Hebrews 4.16, we boldly approach the throne of grace that we may find grace and obtain mercy to help in time of need. It's, it's available. And we don't have to deserve it. We can't deserve it. We don't have to act like we want to deserve it. We just go and we ask. How simple is that? We approach boldly. That's Hebrews 4.16. Romans 8.32 he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Freely give us all things. The biggest weakness I think we have in our prayer life is we don't ask for enough. Spurgeon said that. Spurgeon said, we have a big God. Let's ask big things. Why do we ask little things? How insulting is that? You know, if my dad is Michael Dell and, uh, and I go to him and I, I hit him up for, I say, hey, dad, uh, you know, I've got a big date this Friday night. Can, can, I, have, uh, can I have 20 bucks? Okay. Because I'm a cheap date anyway. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm asking Michael Dell for 20 bucks. You think he's got it? <laughs> How insulting is that? You know, my dad's a billionaire. Hey, Dad, I got a hundred bucks. <laughs> you know, a couple hundred bucks. He's got it. He's got it. And so we go to our Father in prayer and we're asking for so little. How will He not give us freely all things? Of course, in His will. Ask with right motivations according to the will of God. Ephesians 3.20 To Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. The fact is, our human capacity for prayer is limited. We have a finite capacity to ask for stuff. <laughs> and we can't even imagine everything He's waiting to give us. To Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's Ephesians 3.20. 
And so we have this capacity in prayer. We have this freedom in prayer. All the mercy, all the grace to help in time of need, there is no limit. There is no limit whatsoever. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this morning and I thank You for this chapter. I thank You for the whole book of Hebrews. But I love the way chapter 4 ends and it just picks right up in chapter 5. We have a priesthood and our priesthood is not Aaron and his sons. Theirs was a priesthood based upon physical characteristics. Ours is a priesthood based upon the power of an indestructible life. And Father, theirs was a priesthood that was a ministry of death engraved in tablets of stone. Ours is a ministry of life written on tablets of human hearts. I thank you for the freedom we have in Christ, for the blessing we have in Christ. Father, the high priest went into that holy place all by himself. Here we are together as a church body. We're together as a family, as a priesthood with our great high priest, Jesus Christ. How intimate is this? How fun is this? Thank you for making this provision possible. I pray that we will understand it more and more, not only to get stuff, not only to obtain mercy, and, but also to communicate with you, to speak to you, to fellowship to you. Father, to goad one another, to plead on behalf of our nation, on our president, on our government leaders, on our population, to plead on behalf of our loved ones, our our adult children. And Father, so many prayer requests. We've We've got a lot on our plate right now. And so I thank you that the book of Hebrews is going to teach us how to, how to effectively engage your infinite mercy and grace. So Father, we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Sounds like we're going to get flooded out of here before we know it, huh?